Tonight, what we're going to do, you know, the last four weeks we've been looking at the gospel. We just did a little mini-series on what is the gospel. Um, and tonight, what we want to do is we want to put legs on that by uh, just taking two weeks to um, look at some different aspects of what is oftentimes called discipleship. Um, discipleship is really just a word that means following Jesus. So Jesus is not just a set of beliefs. Um, it's not something that just kind of fits up in your head up here, but Jesus had a way. Jesus had um, a way that he lived that's meant to look like the way that we live as well. So knowing Jesus, believing in Jesus is actually meant to change your life. Um, and actually, like, I'm just going to, before I even go any further, can I just camp out on that idea for a second? Like, did you realize that that Jesus is actually supposed to change your life. Jesus is supposed to change your life. <laughs> That's a good question. Anyone have any answers? One day, at a time. One day at a time. Okay, yeah, yeah. Luke? Through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. Okay, okay. Those are all, yep, yep. So that's like, a, a, Will gave the when answer, you know, how does that, when does that happen? Luke gave the how answer. Uh, but, you know, any and you guys, and guys have any thoughts on just like, what does that look like practically? What, what, what things change in your life if you have met Jesus? By praying, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The way you interact with others, okay, you are Stealing the message tonight. That's what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, in the back. The things you focus on. Okay, okay. Yeah, anyone else? Your habits. Yeah? Lydia? Well, I, I missed that last part. What was the last part? Okay, okay, great, great, great. So kind of the things that you desire, the choices you might choose to make would change, yeah. I think there's one more hand back here somewhere. What's important to you? Yeah, okay. Yeah, you know what I'm noticing is that a lot of the things that you guys are saying, I mean, they do all fall under the umbrella of discipleship, but did you notice that those are not just all behavior changes? A lot of times it's easy to think, well, you know, what Jesus really wants out of me is he just wants to change my behavior so that I... You know, I'm a little bit more straight-laced and, you know, dressed with a, you know, you know, a little more nicely dressed. Or, you know, whatever, just outward things. But many of the things that you guys mentioned were actually heart changes. Like changes in what you desire, changes in what you choose, changes in what's important to you. Um, and that is so, that's, I'm so glad that those things have been mentioned. Because all life following Jesus is an inside-out transformation. All of life following Jesus is an inside-out transformation. God wants the heart. God wants your heart. And he wants to change all the, the outward things through inward things. He wants to change what you desire, what you consider important. And when that happens, like, people are going to begin to look at you and say, oh my goodness, like, <laughs> what's happened to Will? Like, the things that he cares about have changed. You know, what's happened to Jake? You know, the things that he cares about have changed. So, discipleship encompasses both the inside and the outside. Why are we going to focus on this for two weeks? Well, <laughs> first of all, because you can't just sort of talk about the gospel and not talk about living it out. But second of all, I mean, I just want you to know, um, there are some people who are actually wanting to throw, the, <laughs> throw in the towel on the prospect of making disciples of this generation. Uh, you know, like, I, I saw something uh, the other day 
in 2021, last year, it was the first time that church attendance in America fell below 50%. And then if you think about like the generation that a lot of us belong to, Gen Z, uh, Gen Z is the most unchurched generation in American history. And so some people have looked at that and they've kind of wrung their hands and despaired that, you know, how on earth are we ever going to help our generation follow Jesus? And a lot of people have wrung their hands so much that they think they've kind of just fallen into despair that it's even possible. And, and so the reason that we want to talk about discipleship is because, like, okay, we, like, thrive, we, we just, I don't buy that narrative. <laughs> like, I just don't buy that narrative that all of a sudden, like, everything is just completely hopeless. Like, at Thrive, we want to equip you guys to know Jesus, to love Jesus, and to live radical lives following Jesus. And I actually believe that, like, the potential for God to really work in this generation may well go deeper than it has in previous generations. That actually there's a huge opportunity that our generation has to follow Jesus in a more real way than maybe uh, our parents' generation or grandparents' generation did. And so tonight what I want to do is I want to look at just like one little aspect of, of what it looks like to actually walk in the way of Jesus. And that's uh, based on Ephesians chapter 4. So uh, Ephesians, that's one of the, the little letters in the New Testament. So if you've got a Bible, um, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 and you can follow along. And what I'm going to do is actually give away my thesis statement. So here's like the point of the message, um, or at least <laughs> one of the points of the message. Thesis statement tonight is that following Jesus is a team sport. Following Jesus is a team sport. Um, you know, actually, I'm being a little figurative with the use of the word sport. Uh, it's not really a sport, which is something I'm glad about because, as you can see, um, I have the arms of a thinking man. I've never been much of an athlete, never been much of a sports guy, unlike some of you I see in the room tonight. So, you know, thank goodness it's not, I'm not talking about a literal sport. But the point is, like, you can't do it alone. It's not something you can do alone. And so uh, we're going to look at this chapter and just look at three things that this chapter says. So number one, uh, unity is the first theme. Number two, diversity. And then number three, maturity. So unity, diversity, and maturity. And uh, just to get us started, I, I actually was going to see if there would be a volunteer. Anyone want to read a couple of verses here for us? Luke, okay. Here, actually, come, come up here and I'll give you the microphone. Well, sorry. Yeah, that's got to be bold. Got to step up. Uh, <laughs> could you read uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6? 1 to 6, okay. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy, worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond, in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Cool. Thank you. Okay, so what I'm going to do is just, I'm, I'm really just going to kind of go verse by verse here. Verse 1, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 
And if you want to know what that calling is, you just got to go read chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 1 through 3 explains what that is. But if I could just kind of offer a little translation of what I think verse 1 is saying. The question here that Paul is kind of asking is, how can Jesus not turn your life upside down? How can Jesus not turn your life upside down? Like, how can you just limit Jesus to sort of being an intellectual thing, a belief thing, and not also spill over to the whole rest of the way that you live your life? I mean, when I think about uh, kind of what that looks like, here, here's one example of, of someone who I think got this. So, um, back probably close to about 200, yeah, I think over 200 years, years ago now, uh, there was a guy named Adoniram Judson. When Adoniram Judson was 16 years old, uh, he entered Brown University, you know, fancy college on the East Coast, and he graduates three years later as valedictorian. So, like, by the time he was, like, some of our ages, and maybe even younger, he had already graduated from college, he'd been top of his class. But while he's there at university, he winds up uh, becoming influenced by a classmate of his, a guy named Jacob Eames. And Jacob Eames is a deist, and, and back in that time, a deist uh, was someone who believed in the existence of God, but rejected uh, the Bible, rejected um, kind of other Christian distinctives. It was sort of effectively the, the sort of the equivalent of atheism of that time. And so Adoniram Judson kind of meets this friend. He becomes uh, pretty, you know, inspired and, and influenced by this friend. And he decides to let go of the Christian faith that his family had raised him with, and he follows his friend, Jacob Eames. Well, one day, a few years later, Adoniram Judson is spending the night in a little inn. You know, back then, it was kind of like hotels. You know, you'd kind of take your horse and you'd tie up your horse to the little post and you'd, you know, go in and, you know, buy a beer and drink the beer and then you'd go rent a room. And that was, you know, sort of like in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> anyway, he, he, he's spending the night in an inn and he's kept up through the middle of the night because he hears the groaning and the gasping of a man who's ill in the room next door to him. And the next morning, he finds out that the person in the room next door to him um, has died in the middle of the night. And what's more, he's horrified to discover that the person in the room next door to him was none other than Jacob Eames. Uh, and there's a biography of, of his life, and, and I'm just going to read you um, what the biography says about kind of this particular chapter of his life. How he got through the next few hours, Adoniram was never able to remember. He was aware that one word was tolling in his mind like a bell. The word, lost. Lost. In death, Jacob Eames was lost, utterly, irrevocably lost. Lost to his friends, to the world, to the future. Lost as a puff of smoke is lost in the infinity of air. If Eames' own views were true, neither his life nor his death had any meaning. But suppose Eames had been mistaken. Suppose the scriptures were literally true and a personal God real. Then Jacob Eames was already lost in a most desperate sense. So Adoniram Judson has this like really significant weighty moment, this encounter, that leads him to give his life to Jesus. And Jesus so changes him that in 1812, Adoniram Judson became the first overseas missionary sent out from the United States. And he devoted the rest of his life to reaching the people of Burma for Christ. He was, you know, translated the Bible there, led a number of people there to, to know Jesus. The point is, Jesus changed Adoniram Judson. Jesus changed him. It wasn't just an intellectual thing. So Paul's point is here, like, how can you not allow Jesus to turn your life upside down? If he really is God, 
if he really did pay an infinite price to sacrifice himself on our behalf on the cross, you know, how can that just be something that, like, is just sort of a nice little philosophical idea? Like, no, that is so, that, that's so weighty that that should change everything about how we live. So that's kind of the introduction. But then you might kind of be tempted then to assume what happens next. So you kind of might think, okay, well, okay, Paul, um, so I want Jesus to change me. Great. Uh, so just, you know, tell me what country I have to go to. You know, like what great thing does God have for me to do? And what Paul says is basically he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. Like the first thing Jesus wants to change is not whether you travel to some place far away from you, but how you treat the people who are right next to you. So just look at verse 2. Verse 2, um, it's all about relationships of love. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So what does this mean? It means love people who drive you crazy. Love people who drive you crazy. Or be humble enough to enjoy the company of people who aren't your people. Be patient with people who really, really, really get on your nerves. That's the kind of transformation that Paul says the gospel does. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to like go off and like, you know, move to some foreign country and be like the super uber amazing awesome, you know, Christian missionary person. The first thing he says is like, "Hey, like how do you love people? How do you treat the people who are nearest to you?" Then, verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Why the focus on unity? Well, verse 4 says, "There is one body." So in other words, if you're a Christian, that's what you already are. You, you're a part of a body, the body of Christ. Uh, some of you guys may have grown up, uh, if you've grown up singing uh, kind of hymns, some of you may have grown up in churches that did that, you probably know the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, sort of a you know, very, fairly well-known hymn. Well, the guy who wrote that was a guy named Horatio Spafford. Some of you may know the story that when um, Horatio Spafford was... Uh, uh, you know, he, he had a number of daughters, and, and he and his family were, were traveling over to, to, uh, to England. And Horatius Bafford was a businessman. He had some business dealings he had to see to, so he sent his wife and his daughters um, to sail over the crossing uh, first, and then he was going to join them a couple of days later on a different ship. And when his, his family was taking the crossing, something went horribly wrong. The ship sank. Uh, all of his daughters lost their lives. Only his wife survived. And she eventually was able to make it to England. And she sent Horatio Spafford a telegram that just had two little words on it. And the words were, saved alone. Saved alone. And, you know, the, the, the connection to the song is that when Horatio Spafford was, was traveling to meet his wife uh, a few days later... Uh, they say that when he was over the very spot where the first ship had, had sunk and his daughters had died, he uh, was inspired to write the words of the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Um, kind of as a reflection of how, like, I don't even understand this, but somehow God is giving me this supernatural sense of peace despite all of what I've lost. But just, you know, what, what grabs my attention is just, <laughs> you know, even just those, those words that were sent in that telegram, saved alone. 
Um, if you're a Christian, there's no such thing as being saved alone. Jesus never saves anybody alone. You're saved into a family, into a body. And so what that means is whether you like it or not, like if you're a believer, then all the other people in this room tonight who are believers as well, uh, you're stuck with them. You're stuck with them. So what actually, okay, you know, turn to someone next to you and I want you to just, uh, you know, look at them and say, you're stuck with me. <laughs> you're stuck with me. There's nothing you can do about it. And, and actually, like, did you notice that, that what, uh, what, what it says here, he doesn't say, uh, hey, I want, you, I, want you guys, I want you guys to make this unity that I'm talking about. He says, no, I want you to keep this unity that I'm talking about. So in other words, the unity is already there. We don't make that. We're just called to keep it. So only Jesus is able to take a whole bunch of different people uh, who all have somehow stumbled into believing in him and what he's able to do is he's able to take totally different people and unite them together as one. I mean, I don't know kind of what you think of all the other people in the room. You know, don't, don't, don't say it out loud. You don't want to embarrass yourself. But, you know, here's what I'll tell you. I'll tell you that there's a lot of different people who are part of Thrive. Um, people from different backgrounds. People from different church backgrounds. You know, some of you guys may have grown up in like really, really conservative churches that like preach the Bible, don't believe in the Holy Spirit very much. And then you know, other churches way over here that like, you know, like are really, really charismatic and really aren't very good at preaching the Bible. But man, you know, you guys love spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and all these things. We're from different backgrounds. And do you know that because of Jesus, all of this, you know, this crazy diverse kaleidoscope of people, we're all meant to be one body. Uh, just personal example, I remember there was a time, <laughs> I was, um, don't ask me why, I was in the country of Macedonia, of all places. I was in the country of Macedonia. I went with a friend of mine to a prayer meeting. I'm in this prayer meeting, and I don't speak any Macedonian. Most of these guys don't speak any English. I wind up praying with this guy. He's a Macedonian guy. And we're like, shoot, I don't know how I can talk to you. Like, you speak this language, I speak this language. We discovered uh, that we both, <laughs> we both knew a little bit of German. So there I am, like this, this like white American guy, and this guy who's a Macedonian guy, he's like probably a decade or two older than me, and we're trying to like pray to the same Jesus like in a language that neither of us know really well. And I, you know, like it was crazy. I felt like, man, like I love this guy. I don't even know who he is. I can barely even understand him. I can barely even understand myself. <laughs> But like, I feel as though there's, like, there's, there's a, a unity and a love and a friendship there because of Jesus. That's what Jesus does. And that's the first point um, in, in what this chapter says. That if you're a believer, you're not saved alone. You're saved into a body. That's unity number one. But now, uh, I'm going to read the next couple of verses for us. Um, so look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Uh, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. 
So the first part of this is unity, but do you notice here that the point of these verses is that unity does not equal uniformity. Unity does not equal uniformity. So he says in verse 7, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And then he goes through this list of all these different ways that God's grace might be given out to each of us. So he has a list. He says uh, there are some who are apostles, some who are prophets, some who are evangelists, some who are pastors and teachers. And what these are, all of these are, are basically like different gifts, different spiritual gifts. We don't have time to get into this tonight, but this is like one of a couple of places in the Bible where it says, hey, like if you're a Christian, then that means that like God has a gift for you. <laughs> and, and that gift is that he wants to actually use you in kind of all the unique ways that you're unique. That could be like your personality, could be things that you're good at. And he actually wants to, to, to not just make you into some sort of like Christian automaton, but he wants to take you, distinctive you, and use you um, in, a, in a way that only you can be used. So it's been said, you know, there are some hands that only you can hold, um, some hearts only you can touch. Um, there are people that God may want to influence through you specifically, uh, because maybe you're the one who has that friendship. Maybe you're the one who has that relationship. Maybe you're the one who actually, you know, kind of has had like, the same experience as that other person, and so you're able to actually like speak to them in a way that no one else can. So God's purpose is not just to make us all like united and therefore like the same, but it's actually so that all of us would actually become more and more distinct, like more and more ourselves. Uh, you know, the, the the family is one that God wants to create is one where um, we're actually like, still ourselves, even as we're coming closer and closer to Jesus. Um, for example, just to kind of give you an illustration, uh, a long time ago, um, I used to play in an orchestra. I was a cello player. And one of the cool things, if you've ever played, anyone ever here played in an orchestra, a band, maybe sing in a choir, anything musical like that? Okay, so some of you. So all of you musical people know that, you know, if you just have your part, and you just, like, play your part, um, well, first of all, it's really embarrassing because if you haven't practiced your part, then it sounds really bad. Um, that's why it's always nicer to play in an ensemble because then everyone else kind of covers up your mistakes. But, like, let's say you're trying to play like a big, you know, symphony or something. If you just play your part, then it's going to sound awful. The only way that the, the masterpiece can be heard is if every single part is playing at the same time. And... Also notice this. Did you notice that he says, what's the point of all of these different gifts? Well, the point is not just that you can kind of say, wow, you know, I'm so thankful that I have the gift of you know, being a really good small group leader. Or maybe I'm really, really good at um, understanding scripture and teaching it to other people. You know, that's the thing about teachers here. The point of the gifts is not just that you can kind of be like really smug and kind of proud of yourself or, you know, I have this gift. But look what he says. In verse 12, he says, the purpose is to prepare God's people for works of service. So what that means is, uh, you know, if you go to a church, your pastor is not designed to be the one doing everything. Your pastor is not designed to shoulder the whole weight of the church. Uh, you know, like even my job up here tonight is not just to, you know, kind of um, try to do everything for Thrive. Like my job, a pastor's job, your job, no matter who you are, is to help other people walk 
in the gifts and the calling that God's given them. So it's a, you know, it's a little bit like a chain reaction. You know, like God touches your life so that you can touch someone else's life, so on and so forth and so forth. It's like you're getting to help activate other people into their kingdom purpose. And so what that means is that like Christianity is not a spectator sport. Like if you think that you can just come to a place like Thrive and you can just like sit in a chair <laughs> and just kind of like passively sit in that chair and just kind of like absorb, absorb, take in, take in. And if that's kind of like the extent of how you think about um, like what it is to like live in Christian community, then oh my goodness, like you're missing out <laughs> and you're not going to grow because you can't just passively sit in a chair. The only way that, that we grow is when all of us stop making Christianity a spectator sport and get involved with God's plan to build up the body of Christ. So what that means is that like everyone else has the ability to be an encouragement to everyone else who's here. Everyone who's here has the ability to contribute something to building up the body of Christ that no one else has. Do you, I just want to ask, like, do you think about your life that way? Do you think about yourself as a spectator? Or do you think about yourself as a participant? That's my hope for Thrive. That's my longing for Thrive, is that instead of just it feeling like, you know, there's a couple of leaders who kind of do a bunch of things, that all of us would, like, get really, really hungry uh, to ask God, God, what do you have for me? Like, what are the ways that you want to activate me to walk in the purpose for which I was created? Um, there's a verse in an earlier chapter in this book where it says, um, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. And that's pretty cool. It means that, like, you don't have to go out and, like, find, you know, some purpose that you invent for your life. Like, God actually already knows what that is. And he longs to see your life connected with the purpose that he has for you. Nothing is more exciting than getting involved in God's plan for your life. And then just last of all, I want to just look at the final verses in this section. And I want to just have us ask, what can happen when the whole body of Christ is doing what we're talking about right now? What can happen when the whole body of Christ is doing what we're talking about right now? So let me go back, uh, starting from verse 11, and I'm going to read down to 16. Uh, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Okay, so actually... We're going to, like, practice what we're preaching tonight. Um, I actually need your help. <laughs> what, uh, th there are a number of things in what I just read that are describing the results of what happens when the body of Christ is all, like, doing its part, working together. And 
I want to ask you, like, what are they? What do you see in here? Just, you know, pull up this passage, look at it. And I just want you to call out things that you see. Uh, what, what are the results of when the body of Christ is doing this? Following Christ and not the wisdom of men. Yeah, so like I, verse 14, I can see that, yeah. We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men. You know, what do you think that looks like? I think one thing I think that can look like is, um, you know, raise your hand if you've ever had a friend and you've just watched that friend like completely go the wrong direction, just like make a really bad choice, kind of maybe even screw up their life. Okay, well, at least a couple hands. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of us have probably encountered that. One of the things that the body of Christ does, it actually says here, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. So, you know, maybe some of you actually kind of warned that friend before they went down that path. But not everyone necessarily always has friends in their life who do that. Like, one of the beautiful things about the body of Christ is that, like, if one of us here, like, starts to wander down that direction, you know what all the rest of us is called to do? We're called to, like, speak the truth in love and say, like, hey, like, I'm going to wave a red flag. Like, I don't think you should go that way. Like, I think you're going to ruin your life if you do that. And so we get to hold each other accountable. That's one thing that can happen. And like Ian said, it keeps us from kind of being held captive by all these kind of false paths that we might go down. Okay, so that's one result. What other results? What do you guys see? Yeah. The body of Christ will grow. Yeah. Um, and I think that means like growth in like maturity. And I think it also means growth maybe even uh, numerically because, you know, what happens when a divided world, a politically like polarized world like ours, what happens when the world sees Christians loving each other and living like Jesus? It's kind of attractive. It's kind of attractive. Unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of Christians aren't very good at that, and we're especially not very good at that right now in this country. However, however, like, if you've ever been in that kind of community, it's amazing how beautiful that can be. I remember there was a time when I was uh, living in England and I was studying with a bunch of people in this, like, Christian study program. And there were people from probably, like, you know, at least a dozen different countries. One day, a friend of ours, um, one of her friends was visiting from another country. And he wasn't a Christian. And he just kind of was hanging out with us. And at the end of the week he had given his life to Christ. And one of the things that like really rocked his world was he just could not understand how can all of you guys from all these different countries and all these different backgrounds, you know, how is it that you guys love each other like the way that I've been seeing? You know, how, how do you guys do that? And that was what like attracted him to Jesus. So the body of Christ is built up. Yeah, okay, what are the results? What are the results? Yeah, Olivia? Yeah, okay, so we'll become more unified. Yeah, believers will build each other up. Yeah. We will know the Son of God. What verse is that? 13, yeah, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Do you know that you can't know Jesus fully without other people? You can't know Jesus fully without other people. The body of Christ is like a gigantic mosaic. And when you put all the pieces together, it forms the face of Jesus. 
And so there are going to be ways in which, like, you're going to learn about who Jesus is from other people, from the way that other people have experienced him, through the insights that other people have into who he is. So the question is, do you look at other believers? Do you look at your local church as in that way? Or do you just kind of say, well, this is just kind of optional. It's some sort of like a nice addition to my Christian life, but really it's just kind of me and Jesus. That's not what scripture says. We need each other if we're even to fully know who he is. Anything else? Any other results that you guys see? I think that may be most of the ones I, I see in here. Let me just conclude by just landing, with, uh, landing on a question here. The question is, how badly do we want this? How badly do we want this? And what would it look like for a community like Thrive to actually live that out? Two implications, two implications. Number one um, is that if it really is true that Christianity is a team sport, then that should change the way that you relate to Christian communities. So we're just coming out of COVID, um, which has just, you know, really been pretty tough on a lot of, not just churches, but all kinds of things in our world. And I think one of the ways it's been particularly tough, especially for like people following Jesus, is that it's been really, really easy to kind of like disconnect from other believers. Um, you know, sometimes because it's just easy to watch church online instead of going. That's not good enough. If you actually are like wanting to pursue Jesus, you can't just sit on a couch and like watch church on TV. You actually have to get with other people. And so one implication is like the importance of being committed to a local church, number one. Number two, um, one implication is um, actually like taking radical ownership of your walk with God. And the reason I say that is because, you know, what have we just seen? Like, what we've seen is that, you know, this whole thing of, like, unity and diversity and maturity, that only happens when everyone is actually, like, pursuing what God has for them, the particular unique uh, calling and gifts that he's given them. And so that actually means that, like, the best way that you can help someone else follow Jesus is to follow Jesus yourself. And when you follow Jesus, when you're taking radical ownership of your own life, you're probably not even going to notice that behind you is a big, big wake of people who have been impacted simply by the way that you're living your life. And you may never even know it this side of eternity. So I just want to challenge you to, to, to really like take seriously, God, like, I don't want to just mess around. I don't want to just sort of be um, kind of treating you in a casual way, but what do you have for me? How do you want to use my life to build up the body of Christ, to build up Thrive? What does it look like for me to take ownership, to take leadership of the person that you're calling me to become? Let me pray for us. Father, um, just thank you so much that um, the vision that you have for your body is good. And Lord, um, just as we're just talking about what it looks like to follow you, Lord, I pray that we would not just buy into the lie that we can just do that on our own. There's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. Um, Father, help us just to love each other. Help us, help us to just delight and enjoy um, getting to be a part of community and a part of a body um, with others who know you. Uh, and Lord, just, would you help bring to pass and thrive uh, just the beautiful reality of what Ephesians 4 is talking about. In Jesus' name, amen.